Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusso, and with us today is Don Kloss. Don is an Ohio naturalist with a strong creative slant who writes across the genre lines, publishing poetry, essays, short stories, songwriting, and long fiction, as well as a musician for the cover band Dogs of Rust. He holds a BS in secondary education from OSU and is an Ohio Volunteer Master Naturalist Certification from the OSU Department of Agriculture and Forestry. His work has been published in dozens of journals and his poetry has been nominated for Best of the Net four times and a Pushcart Prize. He has published two full-length poetry collections, My Life is Tinder and Written Off, and two chapbooks, Big Time and Gnawing on a Friend. He also maintains a YouTube channel where he publishes poetry and music. He is an Ohio Wildlife Center volunteer and recently began a monthly reading series at the Rev Coffee House in Hilliard, Ohio. His ever-faithful companion is his beagle, Frosty, and he's never far from his Jeep. Don, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Could you please start us? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Could you please start us with a poem? I will. Um, you know, I always like to read the humorous ones. So I'm going to start with that. This is called A Tool. <laughs> when someone wants to insult a man or speak poorly of him, they often say he is a tool. This is meant to imply he is a jackass or acts like one. If you go back to the origin of the word, it comes from the Middle English, meaning an implement or instrument. Most often, one of war or torture. In literal use, it meant that which one prepares something. This comes closest to our commonest usage. So let's think it through. A quality tool feels substantial and good in one's hand, like a Makita heavy-duty drill or a DeWalt cordless grinder. A tool like that can make a man. Now take a gulp of beer before I say this. Makes him feel like a real man as he uses it. A tool is a useful item like a hammer, a shovel, a leather punch, or plow. All implements developed a long time ago. They make modern life possible and are cornerstones of civilized planetary life. Tools are timeless devices. And while we now have cordless nail guns, that allow roofers to complete a job on a typical house in eight hours instead of days, there has been no improvement on the basic bottle opener or the pocket knife. While swords are merely a decorative part of military uniform these days, they have not changed much since the days of King, King Arthur, Arthur. Excuse me. There is a band named Tool and they have represented quality in hard rock music since the 1990s. And as related to that musical instrument and instruments and drumsticks and guitar picks and cables and amplifiers and bows, all are tools of the musician. Without them, there would be no music of any kind for us to enjoy. So the word tool 
far encompasses our world in its original meaning. And I predict in its additional notion as a personal slam, that is a fad to fade away by the time 2030 arrives. As an English major and teacher, I implore you, do use the word properly. Don't be a tool. <laughs> Fine advice for more people than we may be willing to admit. <laughs> so what is your earliest memory of poetry? My earliest memory of poetry, probably like a lot of people, is having to study it in school. And it was poetry of the old masters, and it was in archaic language. And you really had to try and pick apart what was meant because there was a lot of words in that poetry that just are no longer used. And it was difficult to get through and usually failed tests on that poetry. Um, as you progress through it, by the time you got through uh, poetry by Sylvia Plath and, and uh, people from that age, you were actually finally able to enjoy it a little bit. And by that time, the, the, the course was over. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I got into college that I was actually able to, to study some things that I enjoyed. Your work is very accessible and in a very good way. Oh, thank you. I, I try to make it that way just for that reason. Yeah. Like when I read it, I, I, I thought Philip Levine, because some of your poems are similar in structure and, and he wrote about, you know, breadbasket America, you know, <laughs> does that type of poetry speak to you? Like when you go out to read something, what are you looking for? Um, I try, I try to be entertaining. I mean, what I try to write is things that will entertain people and will interest people. Um, you know, I kind of took a cue from Frank Zappa. His music was so, you know, so the, the subjects of his music was so widespread and he he in an interview once was asked if it bothered him that it annoyed people that he you know used things about them or about their lives as subjects and his you know songs and he said no i take i take from whatever i see or whatever i find and i kind of do the same thing and you know my motto on facebook is I am your neighborhood poetic junk picker because that's what I do. You know, what, whatever I see and whatever is around me that I observe, um, it's there for the taking if it strikes me. Yeah. And, and that's what I do. Um, you know, in the, the gorillas song, um, Clint Eastwood, there's a line in there where uh, the rapper raps, you see with your eyes, you perceive with your mind. And that's what I do. And that, that 
comes through on the keyboard. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And and your a lot of your work because being a naturalist, you're affected deeply by the environment, and a lot of your work has become increasingly environmental over time. And I've noticed a lot of your poems start like heavily, like it's all it's poetry of place. Like a lot of them are, are poetry of place. You get a good sense of where the speaker's at. Um, but from, from from like for example, the the poem uh, from Sonora to M31, the first stanza gives us the place. You're you're it, it's midnight on a Mexican desert ranch, and it talks about that. And it is until the second stanza that we start getting the speaker's you know insides. So. Is that deliberate starting from external and going to internal or um, is it just that you're observing the environment? You're like, this, this is what's affecting me. This is what I'm going to put in. A lot of time it, it is deliberate. And, you know, I, I think that comes from being a musician in a lot of ways because you know, when, when you are playing a guitar solo, for example, you always start on whatever note the key of the song is, and you do all this noodling and playing around this scale pattern, and what you have to do is, by the time a certain number of bars have passed, you know, a certain number of measures, whether it's 16 or it's 18 or it's 12 or whatever, you have to work it so that you end back on that same note you started on. So it's it's kind of that same thing. You know, you don't want to go, at least to my mind, 30, 40, 50 stanzas to get there. You know, I feel like you have a certain amount of time or a certain amount of lines to say what you want to say, to accomplish what you want to, to get back to that end stanza and that last line, which should really be kind of like the punchline of the whole thing, your, your wrap up of it. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of getting from point A to point B. Would you consider yourself more, predominant and i'm sorry for the binary question but would you consider yourself more of a musician or or a poet first and foremost um it's about 50 50 really it is um it, it it's really hard to separate the two yeah but it's it's you it's hard to separate the two but you but you can't do both at the same time I absolutely cannot listen to music or have the TV on and write. It, it's got to be dead silent in this house when I write. Yeah. And I'm not somebody that can be, um, you know, sitting at a, co a coffee house or uh, sitting at Panera and write poetry. I just can't do it. It's It's, it's got to be quiet. I, I like to have music with no vocals. It just instrumental yeah. something like whether it's like, I don't know, a, a concert hall piece or like symphony or just like video game music sometimes, you know, whatever, just yeah. like whatever I can throw on in the background just to just. I can't. And part of this is I self edit as I go along. I mean, a lot of people will write something and then they put it away for a week and they pull it out 
a week later and then they edit it or they give somebody else to edit. I don't do that. I self edit as I go along. And once I have finished the poem and editing, as I go along, it's done. I don't revisit it, man. I yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting because I, I can't, I can't edit. Like I do the <laughs> exact thing that you described is I put it in a drawer proverbial drawer digital drawer at this point but I, I, I stick it you know in a folder somewhere forget about it and i come back weeks later and only then after i've forgotten what i was trying to do originally do i feel like i can be objective about the editing process well you know people writers um think this is really strange when i tell them this but i will get an idea for a poem like m31 I, I will get that idea for that poem and I close my eyes and I see what that poem is going to look like physically on the page. I see the, the amount of stanzas it's going to be and what the lines are going to look like. And then I open my eyes and I sit down in front of the keyboard and I type it out. I know what it's going to look like on the page. That's a fascinating ability. And you know who else does that? <laughs> it's kind of out of left field, but Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre is a celebrated rap lyricist. And yeah, he will he has a notebook and he writes stream of consciousness style. And he writes and writes and writes. And then he rereads his notebook and then he jumbles it all up. Like he'll read like different pages. But then when it comes to recording day, he doesn't have a song written. And he has nothing prepared. He goes in the recording booth and he hears, sometimes he hears the music for the very first time and he'll listen to the song like 10 times in a row or like the music with no, you know, and he's just planning what he plans to say. And then he walks in and in some, some of his songs are recorded in one take. He walks in, spits it, and then he's done and he walks out of the booth. And that's not a common thing, but it's not unheard of. That's very interesting. I, you know, I do that with poetry. I cannot do it with song lyrics. Those I have to write down because to me, for the most part, those have to rhyme and, okay. and they have to fit the, the framework of the, the musical stanzas or the, the, you know, the, uh, the framework of the choruses or bridges. That, that's a kind of a different beast. Yeah. Have you ever tried to write poems with a chorus in it? Um, no, not really. Okay. All right. For you, what, what makes you decide this belongs in a song or this belongs, this deserves to be a poem or this is a. I don't really, because when I am writing songs, uh, usually the lyrics come last. Oh, I guess that, that makes sense. I I do uh I do the rhythm guitar first and then the bass uh and then the lead guitars then the drums and then the vocals are the last thing. Okay. So you I mean you're involved in a ton of stuff. You do all sorts of different writing like in, in yeah, bunch, too bunch much. Different... <laughs> what is creative expression to you? Cuz you've already said like yeah, I see I witnessed the world and I'm like oh that's cool. I'm going to write that down. Is it that simple for everything and you're just finding the appropriate medium or is creative expression something larger than that? It is something larger than that. Um, 
you know, I used to do all of these things, just, you know, whatever I wanted to work on, on a particular day, that's, you know, what I would do until I decided to start doing something else. And hopefully not to get too personal here, but uh, not quite three years ago, my brother passed away very suddenly and we were very close, had been been our whole lives. He was just a couple of years younger than me. Um, and I thought this could happen to me like any minute and you don't know how much time you have. Uh, I was unable to father children biologically and I need to make a mark on this world somehow. So what I think I need to do, I need to get as many poems, as many books, as many songs. I need to get as much of this stuff out there as I possibly can, you know, before my time is up. I need to get all this stuff accomplished. I need to get as much of it out there and done so that, you know, there is something left of me out there. And, and it's, it's just been a, um, it's been a huge driving force for me. That's interesting. You know, I, I, I wonder how many people, because that's not a common answer, but I wonder how many people are actually just outrunning existential dread. To, to even a small degree, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like the nothing from the, <laughs> the never ending story coming toward you. And you're just like, I gotta, I gotta go. Yeah. I, I you know, and, and I see that people that have, you know, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren, uh, they don't seem to, you know, have a, even those that, that are creative, they don't, you know, have a uh, drive to, you know, have tons of output because they have all these other things, you know, fulfilling their lives. And they've, they've got, you know, younger people that are going to carry on the family name and so on. And, and I don't have that. And it makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure some of that's like time too, because it, it I think a lot of people that tend to be highly active in the writing community tend to be older, you know, because they've got that time. Yeah. Um, cool. So you, you recently got involved at the Rev Coffee House. You started a monthly, monthly reading series. Your first, your first reading is next Thursday, right? Uh, no, they are actually on Saturdays. Uh, oh, Saturday, <laughs> Saturday. They, they are set to be the second Saturday of each month at one o'clock. Okay. And we're, you know, for, for listeners, we're, we're recording this on August 5th. So next Saturday would be the 13th. Yes. Um, so how did that project start? And what, what is it exactly? What, what is, what's going on there? Well, you know, um, I had been going all over town uh, trying to find a venue for myself. Been doing this for over a year and was not having much luck. And, you know, I could have gone to a lot of places in Franklin County, but I wanted to get something started here in Hilliard. And I just happened upon Rev Coffee House. Didn't even know it was there. Uh, and it's kind of tucked away. 
And I went in there and I got a coffee and a bagel. And I asked the girl working the counter if the owner or manager was there. And the owner was there, a real nice lady. And she came up to the counter and I asked her if I introduced myself and I asked her if she would possibly be interested in, you know, starting a series of poetry readings. And she said, oh my God, I have just been this morning thinking about getting something like that started up. (laughs) And, you know, so we had a conversation and we traded business cards and then, uh, you know, we, we talked for a little bit and we decided to set something up and we've been trading emails and, you know, she said, this is when I would like for us to do it. And, uh, it, you know, just, it works out schedule wise for me. Okay. So it's, it's a perfect fit. Excellent. Yeah. For, for Columbus listeners, that's in Hilliard, Ohio. So yeah. And, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna try and, uh, work an open mic into it. In fact, there is, uh, another poet who is up from your neck of the woods. That is a friend of Kendall's and mine, um, who, uh, may just come down one of these Saturdays. Excellent. So that, that'll be real interesting if that happens. Who's the other poet? Um, I'm trying to think of her last name. It's been like four years since I've seen her, uh, Laura. Oh shoot. I can't remember her last name now. I'll have to look it up. Okay. Uh, Her first name's Laura though. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Kendall because Kendall Maverick Duck Press, he published two year collections. Right. And you have an interesting story about how you met him. How did that go? (laughs) Um, that. That went when I first started writing again, I should say again. Um, I saw in the local um, newspaper in in, uh, Burlington County Times in Burlington, New Jersey, there was an article about a poetry writing group uh, called the Quick and Dirty Poets. And they met couple times a month, one time for a reading and one time for workshopping each month. And I contacted them through the paper uh, to see if they would be interested in taking on another new member. And um, I heard back from one of them and they said, yeah, we'd be willing to take on a new member, but what we would like you to do is to meet a few of our members at the, uh, at the library, the, the local libraries uh, poetry group so that we can, you know, check you out and make sure that you're not Norman Bates or something. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I, you know, met them there and some other people that became really good friends And, you know, that night they asked me to join the group and I really, this was really a good thing for me because my writing wasn't that good. And most of what I was writing was this 
really internal melodramatic stuff. <laughs> it's really embarrassing now when I look at it. Yeah, we've all but been there. That's that's <laughs> Kendall was a part of that group and, and he was running his press then. And there was a lady named Anna Evans, who is a adjunct professor of creative writing at Stockton University in New Jersey. And there were two students of creative writing at Stockton. Um, There was a lady who was a creative writing teacher at uh, Delran High School in New Jersey. Um, And there was a gentleman who was a retired engineer uh, from Westinghouse, Bruce Neat, who is a really good writer and has, has had several books published. And uh, we added a couple more members as the years went on. The group lasted for, I think, nine years um, before a lot of people just peeled off their separate ways. And during those nine years, my writing just, it, it just, under their tutelage, improved, 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 improved. Uh, it was it was the best thing that could have happened to me as a writer. And, and they they you know they held nothing back, and I would bring a piece of work in to be reviewed, and you know I would read it, and one of them would just would say. Oh, Don, 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 Don. <laughs> <laughs> what was helpful about that advice? I mean, what what do you think is a helpful piece of criticism that helped you move forward? Just getting, you know, get a couple times a month getting constructive criticism from a bunch of people that, you know, I knew were very qualified and we're not going to you know hold back that that you know we're not going to try and gild a turd you know they were going to be very open and honest with me and when something was really good they were going to tell me and when something was total garbage they were going to tell me yeah sure sure um okay cool now do you do do you do a lot of or do you do acrostic poetry? Um, not I. I don't think in the way that you mean it. Um, I've never really written any poems based around pieces of art. Uh, I have certainly done it based on places okay um in the book my life is tender it's has chapters to it and the first chapter um which is called spotted after harvest um which is about the first third of the book the those are all poems that i wrote when I moved back here from New Jersey, they were all wrote written um, during the first 11 months that I was here and I was living in the country uh, out in this very rural area. And 
they are all either about the scenery there or about things I experienced there. Okay. Um, for example, one poem is about a day I was driving down this extremely narrow road uh, that had these very deep ditch ditches on both sides. And all of a sudden there was a combine coming the other direction and the guy was not watching the road and he was texting and was controlling the steering wheel of the combine with his elbows. Oh, God, and no. I thought for sure I was going to roll over in the ditch. <laughs> uh. So, you know, a situational thing in a, a poem, it, it, you know, spawned a poem. Sure. And, uh, and there was another poem where I was taking my little 11 pound dog who I had at the time outside to do his business and uh, in the backyard, uh, which is uh, very large and uh, uh, a coyote kind of sauntered out of the of the brush and uh scared us scared me quite a bit <laughs> because i'm sure he saw my little dog as a meal and the uh light from the flashlight in his face didn't uh was not a deterrent sure so there were there were a lot of things like that 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 you know ended up being poems okay so in that way, yes, but in terms of me looking at a piece of art and writing a poem about it, no. But I, I, I think some of that is going to happen based on something that uh, occurred very recently. Yeah. Um, I, I was with a friend at the Columbus Museum of Art a couple weeks ago. And I saw some paintings by an artist named uh, George Tooker. And all of these paintings, although they, they were about different things, different situations, the faces of all of the subjects had this very haunted um disturbed look about them and i read online some things about this artist george tooker after i got home and he had done a great deal of study of medieval paintings and that clicked with me because when i lived in new jersey and had gone a number of times to the philadelphia museum of art um, I had looked at a whole lot of uh, medieval paintings there. And from that time period, whenever they did paintings, these artists of women, the faces on these women looked an awful lot like the stereotypical um, art that is done in movies and TV of stereotypical aliens <laughs> the the you know the very large glassy looking eyes the very the too small very thin lips of the mouth and, and just the the very you know overall haunted looking face yeah 
bulbous. That's long where hair. he got it from. Yeah, that's where he got it from. And, and the, the a lot of those paintings I saw were just I I found them very disturbing. <laughs> so I think there's going to be some poems coming out of that. And and for context, the reason why I asked is because I know you have a visual slant to you, like you. You you wrote you you published a collection. It's uh, called Rural Mur- Murals. Yeah, where it's photographs that you took from all over the state of Ohio. Uh, so what what where did that come from? And and where where did you take these photos? And what led you to piecing this all together into a lump collection? They are from mo- mostly from Franklin, Madison, uh, Union counties that's the three main ones uh and a couple of other ones um what led me to do this was i really love the country a lot of times uh my beagle frosty and i we get in the jeep and we just spend an afternoon driving around out in the country and these rural areas, these farm areas are disappearing like at an alarming rate because, you know, the farmers, it's so hard for them to make money and they're selling off their land to developers, you know, and, and we're just becoming so overcrowded with housing developments and luxury apartments and condos and stuff. And I wanted to, to preserve in a, bo- a book, like a photo essay book of the farm machinery and the silos and the barns and the country cemeteries and things like that before they're all gone because they're, they're going quickly. Sure. They're going quickly. And these, you know, these are things that I grew up with. Yeah. And they're disappearing at an alarming rate. Yeah, let's 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 actually talk about your background because you you have a really varied background. Um, you you came from like you said southern New Jersey, and I actually grew up here in Hilliard. Okay, in in the early seventies, when I grew up here in Hilliard, which which Hilliard has about forty six thousand people right now. Uh, when I lived here, we had one traffic light, uh, a high school, a junior high, and an elementary. Um, we had a post office, a small library, and a Dairy Queen, and a funeral home, and there was nothing else. And the next town over, Dublin, was even smaller than that. And now the two towns butt up against each other and they butt up against Columbus because it's grown so much. All the farmland that used to be in between, it's it's no longer there. It's it's all housing developments and, and condos and luxury apartments. Yeah. And it, and it's just expanding westward and northward. Columbus is one of the top three fastest growing cities in the in the country. Yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, there's, there is almost nothing in the way of farmland left in Franklin County anymore. And Madison and Union County, they're quickly both becoming the same way. Okay. 
the expansion yeah. out towards uh, Plain City and uh, Marysville and West Jefferson uh, is going to be, you know, the same way in another five years. Okay. There, there's going to be no farmland left out there. Yeah. That's another wall of existentialism right, rushing right at you. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I just, from how and where I grew up, I hate to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can only imagine. Um, yeah. My, my mom talks about and all my aunts and uncles, they, they grew up in North Canton. Uh-huh. When my grandmother moved in, it was all, you know, rural and, and now it's really built up, you know, it's, it's all shopping. <laughs> and yeah. It's all very suburban. And, and, you know, we, we as kids, now we had friends in Dublin and they were all farm kids, and we used to ride our Stingray bikes out there to visit. You know, you can't do that now. Yeah. Yeah, not until they put in bike lanes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Man. So let's talk about your books. Um, sure. You, your newest collection is written off. Where did this come from, and what? how do you decide what to put together into a single collection? What is your process like? Written off is here. Here's the thing. I, I had published my life as tender in, uh, let's see when, when was this? Let me refresh my memory here. Um, in December of 2020. And that was, you know, that was done, and I was kind of uh, happy that it was done. And then in uh, January, or excuse me, not January, in um, July of 2021, I, I just something clicked. I hadn't written but maybe three poems all year. And I thought, oh, man, I haven't. I haven't done anything. I should have something done by now. So I just started writing like crazy. I started writing three, four poems a day. And, you know, before the year was up, I had 173, 174 poems. I was ready to put, to put another book out. And there was... There was no theme to it um, other than I had a lot more poems in it this time that were humorous and light. And I also exposed myself more, um, you know, with my life as tender, um, you know, there really wasn't a lot in the, po in the, in the poems that was personal in nature. And it was all pretty much observational, but with written off, it wasn't so much observational as it was my thoughts. Okay. And with my thoughts comes um, more things that are personal. So it's kind of a amalgam of, my personal thoughts on things and my humor just sure. a kind of a 
mashup of those two things. And, and, you know, I, I have a love hate relationship with the television. (laughs) So there's a lot of poems and written off where I am taking to task and making fun of television commercials and um, the, the TV lawyers and products that are hawked on television and, and, and things like that. And I have a fun, have a lot of fun with it. And, and I think they make for some, some fairly humorous poems. Yeah. Yeah. The the one that I always think of is uh, for radio commercials, at least are yeah. car commercials on the radio are so irritating because they just scream at you. <laughs> I've got a poem about that in this book about <laughs> yes. the car commercials. Excellent. Excellent. Um, you you talked about the 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 process of putting uh, written off together, where you you eliminated that you 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 threw uh, poetry order in its face. I'm sorry that I did what? Were you were you were you, I'm sorry you turned you you turned the the process of poem poet selecting the order of your poems and just turned it on its head. You just went alphabetically down. Yes, I did. Um, A lot of poets that I know uh, in the past, they have just absolutely driven themselves crazy trying to decide what the order of their poems was going to be in their book. Um, I've, I've, been present when some people have just taken a stack of their poems hard copies and they've handed them to like four or five people and they've just thrown them up in the air and then closed their eyes and however they picked them up that's what the order was going to (laughs) be and they've just done all kinds of crazy things and i i told myself i'm not going through all this the (laughs) readers don't notice what order they're in they don't and i don't think they care so i'm just going to open the folder they're in on my external hard drive and and whatever order they're in alphabetically that's what the order they're going to be so alphabetically the first poem is called 1999 as in the price 1999 and the last poem which is about uh, funny enough the uh roman poet catullus Mm -hmm. and it is where is it it is called xiv as in the roman numerals xiv sure yeah oh that's interesting because i'm i'm one of those people that agonizes over that i'll spend all day thinking about you know it takes me a while to figure out oh yeah this is this is the first poem this is the anchor poem like i I think about that as important so it's it's crazy to hear (laughs) i i think it's a little more important when you're doing a chat book because it's an average of like only 30 32 poems but when you're doing a full length and, and it's you know 100 150 200 pages that that really gets kind of tedious and, and I really don't think that the people you know it, it makes a difference to them 
Sure. It, there's a collection, one of my favorite poetry collections is by a poet named Dor- Dorian Geisler. And he wrote this uh, collection called Flowers of Anti-Martyrdom from uh-huh. McSweeney's. McSweeney published it. And he did a similar thing with titles. Every single poem in that collection is just called A Poem. That's just the title of it. <laughs> like, the poems will speak for themselves. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just let the readers figure it out, you know? Um, how How does... You know, for our last question, I, I'm curious because, you know, you've become increasingly environmental over time and you're a trained naturalist and you, you teach naturalism classes, you, you teach uh, environmental classes. How does that feed into your writing? Uh, I am actually, I am starting to write more and more poems that are related to that but i don't want to be pigeonholed into that i don't want to be only writing that um there's too many other things to write about i don't want to be pigeonholed as you know a nature poet uh there are other people that do that way better than i do or would um pun intended but you know, I enjoy writing about nature. Uh, that was why I wrote the first book, um, "Leaves in My Boots," and I will probably write a, a follow-up to that. Um, but there, you know, I am in the things I am currently writing now. I am finding that I'm writing more and more about it. Um, of course, with my life is tender, that whole first section of that book there were there were more while there were some things about living in a rural area and poems about you know the farmland and things like that there are more nature related poems in there as well okay cool, cool. so i've i've done some in the past i'm i'm doing a little more now but i don't see me putting out any books that are just you know strictly nature poems Okay, cool. Excellent. Well, would you like to read us a poem to take us home? Sure, sure. Um, I've got uh, another humorous one here, if you don't mind. Yeah, I like no, the humorous I ones. <laughs> this is called Houston, We Have a Problem. <laughs> I've heard people say it's not rocket science. Or to insult someone, they state, he's no rocket scientist. I began to wonder about this and did some research. I scanned degrees offered by numerous universities, Ohio State and Penn State, Southern California University, Michigan and Rutgers and Texas A&M, and found that there is no such degree as a BS in rocket science. (laughs) Next, I looked at the official jobs listing for NASA and saw these positions available. Manager, power and propulsion elements, senior tech league for GOXO program, electro-optical sensor systems engineer, 
aerospace engineer for fluid mechanics, engineer automation and robotics systems, and on and on and on. 20 pages of listings, but no positions for a rocket scientist or rocket anything. So you see people, you may be smart or a genius. You may have a high-tech job. You might even work for NASA yourself, but none of us are or can be a rocket scientist, and that changes things. <laughs> I like it. All right. This has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPA on Twitter at Ohio Poetry and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit ohiopoetryassociation.org for more information. Don, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.